Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Pathways to Business Success podcast series. Today, I have the absolute honor and pleasure of having with me the wonderful speaker, Professor Nero Sevanatan from London Business School. Today's topic will be about negotiation. Please, Professor Nero, can you introduce yourself to our audience and tell us a bit about your background? Sure. Yeah, uh, wonderful uh, to be here. Thank you so much for having me on your podcast. Uh, I'm uh, on the faculty here at the London Business School. I've been here now just a little bit over 12 years. Uh, mm -hmm. Much of what I research tends to sort of broadly fall under the rubric of decision making. Um, and within that, I study sort of the psychology of status, power, hierarchy, uh, and uh, I've mentioned obviously decision-making uh, and the social psychology of decision-making across various contexts. Um, and I think the, uh, the platform through which you and I met is I also teach the uh, popular elective here at the London Business School, which is the negotiations and bargaining course uh, to both MBA students, uh, MBA students, um, et cetera. So I believe that's when we first met and here we are again, a few years later, uh, having the pleasure of speaking further about negotiations. Well, that's wonderful to have you back. And uh, this topic of decision-making psychology is, I think is quite uh, fascinating. It's like a broad aspect of it, like a behavior of the human mind, those kind of things, right? Indeed, yeah. So, you know, uh, decision-making uh, has a uh, uh, long um, and, and rich history, both on, on the research front, uh, but also the, the non-research front. And the area where I uh, do research in is, is referred to as sort of behavioral decision-making. Um, so if you start with the assumption that people are completely rational agents who have all the information that they need to make uh, decisions. Uh, oftentimes that's not the case. Decisions are made under uncertainty, uh, mm. under the fog of uh, sort of the future or perhaps the history of the past. And invariably we fall victim to various biases, sort of cognitive heuristics or biases that impact our decisions. And it's sort of those biases that I um, study, uh, again, within sort of a social psychological rubric. Um, some of your listeners might have heard of, you know, Nudge or uh, Kahneman Tversky, uh, Richard Thaler. Uh, much of that research is essentially how do you sort of uh, utilize or apply some of these behavioral decision-making to impact the outcomes, typically for, for helping individuals make better judgments. Wow, that's really fascinating. I mean, the bias side is quite, uh, it's difficult to be unbiased sometimes also. Indeed, yeah. So I think the, the word bias gets dropped in uh, in lots of manner, um, and oftentimes it means different things. Uh, I study more cognitive biases, uh, uh, sometimes also social biases, but you oftentimes hear about biases as it relates to stereotypes, um, you know, gender bias, race bias, et cetera. It's, no, it's not those types of biases I study. I study sort of quirks of the mind, um, you know, the shortcuts that our minds uh, engage in that impact uh, and deviate from us making sound rational decisions. Wow, wow, amazing, fantastic. Thank you so much for this clarification. I want to ask you this question that uh, the audience maybe would like to uh, understand more. Can you explain to us in your own words, what is negotiation? <laughs> sure. Uh, so negotiation, uh, so I take a fairly liberal uh, definition, if you will, you have to negotiation. So for me, negotiation is 
almost any decision-making process whereby two or more individuals decide to uh, allocate uh, scarce and dependent resources. Right? And, and I think the operative word being dependent. So if I ever want something, whether that be a commodity, a resource, piece of information, uh, data, and as long as one other individual has some say over it, for all intents and purposes, I'm in a negotiation. Right? However little, the other party might have, uh, or however little agency they might have over that that resource, for all intents and purposes, I'm in a negotiation, or at least has the structural elements that make up a, a negotiation. Now, obviously, some of your viewers will have varying other definitions, you know, such as uh, you know coming to a compromise, getting what I want, maximizing my outcome, uh, maximizing both parties' outcomes or multiple parties' outcomes, and those certainly fall within the larger umbrella of negotiation and in many ways they speak to your outlook to negotiation but for me uh, negotiation is a is, is fundamentally a decision-making process um, and oftentimes uh, the part that I think uh, sort of neophyte negotiators make a mistake of is to kind of view it as more of a debate right in a debate what you're trying to do is pepper the other side with all mm. the information you have as a way to get them to see the world through your lens. Um, in negotiation, to a very large extent, it's about gathering information, knowing uh, what is the critical information that you need, what are the right type of questions you need to ask in order to gather that information, uh, how do you distill that information to its usable parts, and you know what is the calculus that you use on that information such that you could move the negotiation further to come to a conclusion. So uh, in a long-winded manner, uh, Ihab, that it, to me is a the definition of negotiation. It's a very liberal one. Um, and partially I take that liberal one because oftentimes people think for a negotiation, we need to be sitting down at the bargaining table and negotiating an outcome. Uh, but turns out a lot of social interactions have the fundamental tenets that make up a negotiation. Exactly, absolutely right. So basically, gathering critical information by asking the right question, in a sense. Indeed, yeah. So in fact, I think sometimes the the uh, the difference between sort of professional negotiators and those that might consider some consider themselves to be novices is that the novices speak far too much and listen far too little. Um, and much of negotiation is gathering information and, and using that as a way to move the negotiation forward. Great. I think we can also advise our audience uh, listeners, maybe can read the book, uh, Getting to Yes. Yes, yeah. So um, this is the book, as you know, uh, from your time at LBS is the book that I uh, assigned. Uh, this is something I've assigned, I think, from the time I used to teach at uh, Kellogg um, uh, when I taught at Cornell, and I still continue to use it. It is a oldie, but a goodie. It's a classic. Uh, and the reason why I assign it is it allows people to hopefully subscribe to a slightly different take or perspective to negotiation. Um, and it's a wonderful book by William Murray. Um, and it's, to me, sort of the book, the go-to book, uh, whenever anyone requests a book that I would recommend on the subject. Awesome. So I would highly urge your readers, or sorry, I should say your listeners uh, mm -hmm. to read uh, Getting to Yes. Absolutely. I also concur on that aspect.
Thank you so much, uh, Nero. Um, you know, before we go and sit on the table, uh, on the negotiation table, how can a person, you know, prepare for that negotiation? You know, either it could be a job opportunity or going for a pitch. What do you advise here, our uh, listeners? Yeah, this is a, a wonderful question, uh, Ihab, and it's also a, a, a part of the negotiation. Oftentimes people uh, underestimate or ignore in sort of the, the larger uh, process of negotiation. Um, to me, I think one of the, the defining characteristics of a good negotiator is that they also happen to be the best prepared negotiator at the bargaining table. Um, I, and there's certainly others are of the view that negotiation very much is, is more of an 80-20 principle. 80% of it is in the preparation, 20% of it is in the execution. Uh, if you happen to be the better prepared negotiator, all else being equal, you will almost invariably get a better outcome. Wow. So, and, and preparation can be any number of um, uh, methods the one that allows you to have some sort of structure and understand sort of the negotiation space is what I oftentimes urge my students and execs to do is, is to do what's commonly referred to as a planning document. And then you might remember this uh, from your time. A planning document for all intents and purposes is a strategy document that allows you to think through the fundamental elements and the structures that sort of hold up the house of negotiation. And, and maybe we'll talk more about this uh, later, Ihab, but it's, mm -hmm. it's you sitting down and thinking about, you know, what is your BATNA? Uh, mm -hmm. What is your reservation price? You know, what is sort of your walkaway price? What are your sources of power? What are the outside options that you have that you might exercise? What are some critical elements that you cannot negotiate on? Um, thinking more broadly about things that you want, and it's also sort of unpacking what is your sort of underlying interest. And I might at the bargaining table say, I want more salary. Yeah. Now that's a position, but what is the interest driving that position? You might, might want more salary because you're thinking of purchasing a house. You might be thinking of doing renovations, starting a family, any number of elements. Understanding those interests then give you greater options to try and satisfy those interests. So, so planning in, in that sense, but on the flip side, it's also how do you um, plan by thinking about your counterpart? Uh, the very good negotiators don't sort of go through those elements as it relates to them, but they also go through the mental exercise of putting themselves uh, in the shoes of their counterpart and seeing the negotiation through their lens. Um, and oftentimes you won't know the, the answers, right? For instance, if I'm negotiating with you, Ihab, over a sale of a, you know, maybe your Porsche 911 you no longer need, um, I could try and put myself in your shoes and mm -hmm. think, th think through the negotiation through your lens as to why you're selling it. I might not necessarily know what your BATNA is, uh, your interests or your reservation price. But the, the, the reason you do that isn't necessarily to get an absolute answer, but the mental exercise of thinking through from your perspective gives you a much richer lens to the negotiation space. And, mm -hmm. and so let, let me give you an example that perhaps might better articulate this to your readers. Uh, and this is somewhat timely, given that we're recording this just a couple of days after the uh, U.S. election. So, 
1912, um, Teddy Roosevelt uh, uh, went on a whistle-stop campaign. So he was campaigning to be the president of the US um, and he decided to print 3 million pamphlets with his picture on it, right? So he, in a sea of pictures that existed, he found one that he thought, you know, showcased him in his best light, so to speak. Uh, he printed 3 million pamphlets and after printing these 3 million pamph pamphlets, he realized that the copyright was owed uh, by owned by Moffat, Sto Moffat Studios. Mm -hmm. And the fee was $1 per picture, right? So wow. in order for Teddy Roosevelt to use it, he would need to pay $1 to Moffat Studios, which means he would owe them 3 million US dollars. <laughs> 3 million US dollars is a fair amount of money. Now, back in 1912, that's a very, very large sum of money. Right? So you, now you could see here, this is something he's gonna try and negotiate. I mean, he could not use it, but he's obviously very keen. Now you could think about, you know, what are my alternatives? What is my options? What is my strength, et cetera. Uh, his campaign manager kind of went one step ahead, which is not to sort of think through what are, uh, how, well, how does this negotiation look through the lens of Teddy Roosevelt, mm -hmm. but how does this negotiation look through the lens of Moffat Studios? And what he realized was that a, a key interest or a key benefit of Teddy Roosevelt using this picture is that it's absolutely amazing publicity for Moffat Studios, right? In a, in a sea of pictures, the yes. one that a potential future president has chosen is owned by Moffat Studios. So he sent a memo uh, saying, you know, we're thinking of using your picture on it. Great publicity for you if we use it. How much will you pay us to use your picture? Wow. That's <laughs> to which they got a, a, a memo back that said, appreciate opportunity, but can only afford 250. Uh, they paid the 250 and the deal was done. Okay. Now, briefly suspending sort of the ethics behind this, uh, I show, I give you that example because you'd see the negotiation through one lens looks like you have a bunch of options. You can negotiate, offer a volume discount, you know, or seek a volume discount, et cetera. But the minute you see the negotiation space through a different lens, it gives you potential other avenues that meet the interests of your counterpart while also meeting your interests. And it, it's a mental exercise that the more you do prior to the negotiation, the better equipped you will be to navigate the process of a negotiation. Exactly, absolutely right. I mean, uh, you put yourself on the shoes of the our counterpart and you look at the wider spectrum of the lens so you can understand it more and have a better negotiation on that table. Right, indeed. And, and I think it's one of those things that the first time you try to do it, it might seem like you're sort of lost. Uh, it requires a bit of effort, but the more you could get into that mental exercise, I mean, another way to think about this or what uh, uh, in the academic parlance would be referred to as perspective taking. If you could take the perspective of others, both sort of cognitive, but sometimes also emotional, uh, especially in conflict negotiations, okay. understanding how your counterpart might feel in the current scenario might give you a greater insight into how to navigate what is otherwise sort of tends to be contentious negotiations. Uh, I think it, it, it comes with practice, but the more you do it and the more you do it a priori to the negotiation, the better equipped you will be doing the negotiation. Absolutely. In that case, you will have like more empathy in that case. You have to you know, uh, be able to master the empathy part. All right.
Hello. Hello. Yeah, it looked like it it uh, cut off, but it's come back. Okay. Uh, should we? Do you want to start again with the empathy question? No, that's sure. okay. I mean, uh, I mean, just I'm mean, just like like having more empathy in that case to be able to have the emotional attachment. That's right. Yeah. So one is uh, more empathy, um, and sometimes you know in conflict, uh, people may come across as rational, uh, but understanding their scenario or how that scenario might feel if you were to experience it might allow you not to necessarily make certain misattributions. So uh, there's a famous uh, line that I've oftentimes used and, and I like this is this idea that, you know, there's obviously the planning document, there's some strategies, which we might talk about um, uh, later, Ihab, but there's also something about, you know, what is your approach or what is your outlook to the negotiation? And, and this one idea that I really like, which is in a negotiation, it's this notion that always seek to understand before being understood, right? And so if you sort of take that approach that you're going in trying to learn as much as possible about your counterpart, that gives you a slightly different mindset to your approach to the negotiation. And oftentimes people go in wanting to sort of uh, very explicitly outline their perspective. And I think that's important and, and there's ways to do that. But if you could sort of subscribe to a mindset, I do like sort of this idea of seeking to understand before being understood. Fantastic, great. So just to summarize here a bit for our listeners. So basically 80-20 rules, 80%, 80 preparation and 20% in the execution and make sure to have a structure and a planning document for your strategy. That's right, yeah. Um, and there's obviously the mechanics of it, but again, the more you you practice doing it, the better you'll be. As, as you know, Ihab, I'm a firm believer that good negotiators are taught, not born. Um, and if you could uh, extract what is now almost 30 plus years of sound scientific research and evidence to negotiation, uh, you could mobilize that science rather than uh, resorting to other approaches. Um, and, and one of them obviously is just the sheer importance of preparation. Great, fantastic. Thank you so much, Emiro. Uh, since you mentioned the BATNA and the reservation prices, could you explain to our audience what does that mean in your own word? Yeah, of course. Um, so BATNA is an acronym uh, and it uh, uh, stands for Best Alternative to a negotiated agreement, right? B-A-T-N-A. And what that fundamentally means is, what is the alternative that exists out in the real world that you would go off and exercise if the current negotiation falls apart, right? So if I go back to the example, Ihab, of you know, you're selling me a car and, and we're negotiating, the question to ask is, in this current negotiation, if for some reason it falls apart, what is the alternative that exists that I could go off and exercise or mobilize? And that could be that there's an alternative card that I saw uh, that, I'm, uh, that I would potentially go and buy. It could be I continue to take uh, public transport. It could be that I use the money towards some other form of consumption, whatever mm -hmm. it might be, you need to have a very clear sense of what your alternative is. And, and the reason for that is in a negotiation, your single greatest source of power is your BATNA. 
the stronger your BATNA, the greater the power you have in the current negotiation. And oftentimes we talked about um, job negotiations earlier, Ihab, um, yeah. right? Is people thinking, look, I'm negotiating with this big four consulting firm, or mm -hmm. I'm negotiating with the very best investment bank. I don't have a lot of power. Power in a negotiation isn't sort of the, the size of the individual or the company, uh, right? Intellectual capital, political capital, or uh, social capital are all wonderful things to have. But structurally within the negotiation, the power you have endogenous to a negotiation is determined by the exogenous factor of a BATNA. The stronger your alternative, the more power you have, right? If, I, if I'm negotiating and I have a very good offer that pays me X, gives me the best perks, puts me in the best city that I want to work in, et cetera, in this current negotiation, I, because of the strength of that alternative, it both structurally gives you more power, but it also psychologically gives you more confidence to ask for more uh, with the comfort of knowing you have a very good alternative to fall back to. So one of the things I often uh, repeatedly, uh, almost as a broken record highlight is don't ever sit down at the bargaining table without knowing what your BATNA is. Uh, because if you don't, it has a tendency for you to sort of lose sight of where your source of power is um, and you might sort of cross that limit and strike deals that are worse than your alternative. So always, always know very clearly what your BATNA is before you sit down at the bargaining table. And let me ask you here, sorry to disrupt you, uh, the question, what if you don't have any BATNA in that case, what do you do? Yeah, right. so this is, this is another question that, that sometimes comes up. So, some, uh, you know, uh, in the MBA classroom, sometimes students will come to me, especially during the job recruitment season, yeah. to say, hey, Nero, can you help me negotiate? So it was a few years back, um, one of the students came and said, you know, Nero, I've got a job offer. Can you help me negotiate? And, and one of the first questions I often ask is, you know, what is your BATNA? If I don't ask them for a planning document, at the very least, I ask them what their BATNA is. Yeah. And on this one occasion, the student said, well, Nero, now you're just adding insult to injury. I have no other job offers. I have no BATNA. Now, technically, that is incorrect, right? You always, always have a BATNA. Yes, this person doesn't have another offer, but his BATNA could be he stays on the job market, keeps looking for another job. His BATNA could be he takes a year, goes traveling. His BATNA could be to go get a second MBA. His BATNA could be uh, to work at a fast food restaurant um, in, in the kitchen. <laughs> Granted, all of these alternatives are are not great, or you could even say they suck, but you do have a BATNA. You always have an alternative. It might not be very good, but if it's not very good, then you have less power in the current negotiation. And in this case, because he doesn't have an alternative, uh, or at least a strong alternative, he is in a weaker position. Uh, now, there's some ways to overcome that, but you do always have a BATNA. Now, it sort of highlights to you, you have why it's so critical that you always know what that alternative is that you would fall back to. Exactly. I agree with you. I mean, the, the stronger the BATNA, the better you'll be at the negotiation table. But you'll always have different options, but maybe that option doesn't suit you, but at least you have a couple of different alternatives, let's say, to negotiate. So it's the choice is up to you in the end of the day, right? 
Exactly. And, and one of the ways that I tried to highlight this um, in, in the classroom is in one of the exercises uh, for half the class, I give them uh, an alternative that has higher point value. And to the other half, they have an alternative that's lower po point value. And they're randomly mm -hmm. distributed. Everyone has learned the same lessons. And invariably, every year, the group that has the stronger BATNA gets a better outcome. Because what happens is that you not only do you have a stronger uh, alternative that gives you structural power, but it gives you sort of the confidence and sort of stretches your aspiration, if you will, in the current negotiation to get something that's better than the alternative. Um, and the more that is clearly defined before you sit down, the better you will be during the, the actual uh, kind of the negotiation dance, if you will, that you're having currently in the negotiation. Absolutely. Here, I want to stop on this key. I think it's a key word here is the confidence in yourself or in the negotiation. Confidence is really important because uh, that will build up, you know, the psychological behavior, decision making, all those kind of things. So confidence, it could be really vague, but it's really important to have it regardless of the outcome of it. Indeed, yeah. So obviously, confidence in, in, in most tasks uh, and, and most activities um, certainly play a role. Um, now, I think the, the part that's important to keep in mind is that if you, um, th there is a science to negotiation. There, there is a very established science to both sort of how you prepare, uh, the way in which you make offers, et cetera. And, and my uh, sort of goal would be to sort of uh, transmit that science utilize that science, you'll start seeing better or positive outcomes, which then increases your confidence the next time you sit down at the bargaining table. My, my hope is to sort of create a positive feedback loop that sort of builds on that confidence. What you don't want to do is go in and try a strategy that we know doesn't work. Mm -hmm. It doesn't work, which then uh, your confidence takes a negative hit. So the next time you show up now with even lowered confidence, um, you try something else that's even more vacuous um, and that then further results in a negative outcome. So sort of not get you into sort of this negative spiral. Uh, and so the, so one of the reasons I sort of highlight the BATNA is just that mental exercise of knowing it, uh, the mental exercise of planning for a document invariably mm -hmm. nudges you towards better outcome. Which, of course, as you correctly pointed out, if you get a, if you got a better outcome in that negotiation, you will invariably feel more confident the next time. You might set even slightly loftier goals at the yeah, bargaining table. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. That's really uh, fantastic. Thank you so much, uh, Nero. Uh, my final question to you today will be: um, When you go to the negotiation, which party should be making the first move? Yeah, so this is uh, this is uh, one of those wonderful questions that is um, in, uh, debated quite a bit. And in fact, I've come across books uh, that have certainly argued for uh, the the opposite. So before I kind of tell you the right answer, um, so you know, people say uh, so. Commonly, people say you know you don't want to make the first offer because you don't want to give up too much information, or I want to gather information, etc. Uh, those who make the say that you should make the first offer sometimes will say, well, it depends whether you're the buyer or the seller, uh, and various contingencies. Or once in a while, people say, well, you do because you want to uh, anchor the negotiation. 
uh, and so it turns out if you look across the research, uh, the evidence is pretty clear on this, which is in almost all instances, you want to move forward and make the first offer. And specifically, you want to make an aggressive first offer. And the reason for this is because of this vexing and ubiquitous bias referred to as the anchoring and insufficient adjustment bias. Um, and so let me very quickly sort of highlight this bias. Um, so this is one of, the, one of the many biases discovered by Kahneman Tversky. And the idea here is that whenever you're trying to come up with a valuation or an estimate for uh, a, a, a certain outcome, mm -hmm. uh, a certain idea, whatever it might be, you mm -hmm. typically start with the reference point and then okay. you try and adjust away from that reference point. However, that adjustment is insufficient, right? And hence referred to as the anchoring and insufficient adjustment bias, right? So imagine, for instance, uh, uh, this question where you're, you're brought in and you're asked, you know, what are the number of total number of countries that make up the continent of Africa? And one group is told, is it more or less than 75? And another group is brought in and asked the same question, and you're asked, is it more or less than 25? Typically, the group that gets 75 will come back with an estimate, let's say, in, you know, in the 50s or 60s. Yeah. The group that got the 25 anchor com comes back with an estimate somewhere in the 30s or 40s. Right? The number of countries that make up the continent of Africa is a material fact. When you hear 75, you realize it's too high, you need to adjust downwards, but that adjustment is insufficient. When you hear 25, you realize you need to adjust upwards, but that adjustment is also insufficient. And the true answer is you know, 53 or 54, depending on um, certain states. But you'll see here, what happens is that number that's initially stated acts as a reference point or as an anchor, you try mm -hmm. and adjust away from it, mm -hmm. but it becomes insufficient. Um, there's other studies where, you know, people are brought in uh, or given a bottle of wine, uh, asked to estimate the, the true price uh, mm -hmm. of that bottle of wine and whoever comes closest gets to take it home. Uh, <laughs> but before they do, I had a colleague who used to ask people to write down the first two digits of their mobile number. So, and well, so people I... write down those first two digits and then guess the price of the bottle of wine. Um, <laughs> The people who, and you know, your mobile number has no relevance to the price of the bottle of wine. And what he would repeatedly find in his decision-making class is that the final estimate would be highly correlated with the first two digits of their student, uh, sorry, their mobile number. Okay. And so what that means is that first offer that you make at the, the bargaining table similarly acts as an anchor. Uh, your counterpart is trying to adjust away from it, uh, mm -hmm. but that adjustment is often insufficient. Um, and the other reason why th this bias kind of is especially important in negotiation is what's commonly referred to as this idea of a midpoint bias in a negotiation. Negotiations have a tendency to end at the midpoint between the first offer and the mm -hmm. first counteroffer. Right? So mm -hmm. given this, that then sort of behooves you to make uh, an aggressive first offer. Now, there are some caveats you have. Uh, one is um, you shouldn't make a first offer if you don't know, if you haven't done the research, um, if you haven't done the necessary homework, mm -hmm. you don't want to make the first offer because invariably you don't know what the market clearing price is. You don't know enough information. Second, 
uh, you know, there is a limit to how high you could make an aggressive first offer. I cannot just tell you, Ehab, I want a million and then, you know. For my Porsche? Be... For my Porsche? Yeah, that's right. For your Porsche, exactly. Yeah, I guess you would be smiling if I said I'm happy to pay a million. But you, on the other hand, cannot say I want a million. Uh, and if I were to ask you why, uh, your answer cannot be, you know, I like six zeros. Um, so uh, a first offer is, is only aggressive and is only effective to the point where you could provide a sound, rational explanation for why mm -hmm. you believe it's worth X. Um, so again, all else being equal, there are some limits to it um, uh, and some specificity, uh, which we probably won't have time to get into, but on average, the first offer does have an advantage uh, in negotiations. And it, it also shows that it has an effect across cultures as well. Uh, there's also some recent research that, that shows that um, first offers that use specific numbers are more effective because it, in some ways it signals to the counterpart there's some sort of calculus behind that number. Mm -hmm. right? So instead of saying you want 75,000 uh, pounds for the Porsche, you could say, you know, I want 74,923 pounds. Mm -hmm. um, even though it's slightly lower, the attribution I make is you've used some sort of rational calculation to arrive at that, at that number. Great, great. So basically, the, your advice would be to make a first aggressive move, and that has to be a rational uh, move, basically, and to anchor the price to meet at midpoint somewhere. Yeah, um, I mean, you might not always at the midpoint, but on yeah. all else being equal, there is a very clear evidence for the impact of the first offer. And, and given that it acts as an anchor, you want to try and push that uh, as favorably in your direction as possible. And, and the boundaries to that, which makes it easier, is make sure that you have a sound rational explanation that you yourself subscribe to such that you could you know, clearly market it to the other side. Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, we reached our end, uh, Professor Nero. Thank you, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for being here. Thank it was a pleasure, Ehab. Uh, it's fun to talk to you as always. Thank you so much. So stay tuned, stay tuned, everyone, and subscribe to our next Pathway to Business Success podcast series. And I look forward to speaking to you again. Have a great day, everyone. Thank you, and bye-bye. Yes. Thank you for listening to Pathways to Business Success podcast. It has been a pleasure to have you, and I hope you have enjoyed our episode. If you'd like to listen more to our experts, interview and amazing speakers, please subscribe and come and find us on www.ehabtabara.com.